You are listening to audio from the Rail City campus of CA Church. We are a church fervently committed to bringing the good news to the city of Port Moody. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. On that day. You know, if you've never been in a courtroom, maybe think about uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, okay? Actually, maybe you don't. Maybe think about an ancient, maybe, maybe think of an ancient courtroom that you'd see kind of in the ancient world, built of rocks and, and, and just like a beautiful architecture. This is where they would have been. And, and so on one side of the courtroom, you have these angry Jewish leaders, these people who really want to take Paul out, and they're being represented by a lawyer whose name is Tertullus. Okay, so that's on one side. These guys are ready to do whatever it takes to take Paul out. They want to see him put to death. I want you to feel the tension that would have been in the room. Many of these people, by the way, wouldn't have been strangers to Paul. Because in Paul's former life, before meeting Jesus, he was a Pharisee. So it's likely that a lot of these people who were kind of shouting that he should be killed were his friends. These are people he grew up with. These were Pharisees that he would have known. And and because now he's put his hope and his faith in Jesus, they're turning on him. They're turning against him. That's what's happening on one side of the room. And then on the other side is Paul, who isn't represented by anyone. He doesn't have a lawyer with him. He's about to represent himself. This is kind of the setting, the backdrop of Acts chapter 24, a courtroom. Paul on one side, his accusers on the other. So let's look at verse 1, Acts chapter 21. 24, sorry, starting in verse 1. By the way, normally we stand for the reading of God's word, but this is a really long section of scripture. (laughs) And so we're actually going to work through it section by section. I'm going to let you sit in those super comfortable theater seats for a little while, okay, as we work through the text. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 24 says this. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. He said, we've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and and your providence has brought about reforms in the nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Okay, I want to pause there for a moment. What's going on in these opening verses? Tertullus, the lawyer, he's, he's making his opening statements. He's getting ready to drop accusations about Paul. But he opens with this, like, intense flattery. He's flirting with Felix. He's kind of buttering him up, saying all these things that he can, hoping to get Felix on on, on his side, saying that he's brought peace and providence for all the people, that he's, he's made great reforms across Israel, that they're filled with this gratitude for him. The only problem with those flattering words is that there's not an ounce of truth in them. Who was this Felix that he's talking about? Well, Felix was a governor of an area that was at that time called Palestine. He ruled from 52 to 60 AD, and everything we know from history about this this guy is that he was seriously messed up. He was cruel. He, he, He authorized the execution of thousands of people. He was corrupt, lying, bribery, scandals. He he had multiple wives, many of them actually being underage wives, lots of affairs. He went down in history as one of the worst and most brutal leaders in the ancient world. One historian said, everywhere that Felix and his cohort went, they brought deserts and called it peace. So with that in mind, those opening words that come from the lawyer's mouth is at best flattery, but really just lies. Felix has destroyed their land. He's destroying Israel. He's he's cruel to the people, but Tertullus starts with these words and sort of butters him up. I imagine maybe Felix is sitting there in that moment, kind of nodding his head like, yeah, yeah, I am the man. The people do love me. He's just kind of soaking it all in. 
It's been said that, that flattery is like perfume. It smells great, but don't drink it. Tertullus continues, okay? Verse 5. We found this man, Paul, to be a plague. He's stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to profane the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we're bringing against him. Okay, let's stop there. What do they have against him? What are the charges that have brought them together in this moment in the courtroom? Well, there's three main charges. First, they say he's a plague. He's stirring up riots. He's disturbing peace. He's bringing chaos. He's politically dangerous. I think they're really, in this point, they're, they're, they're appealing to the political concerns that Felix probably has. Because one of, one of Felix's main responsibilities to Rome was to keep peace between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Tertullus, the lawyer, is saying, Felix, Mr. Governor, Paul is going to make you look bad in front of your, 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 your supervisors. He's a plague. He's stirring up trouble. If you don't get rid of him, he's going to destroy the peace that you have cultivated here. So first, he's a plague. Second, he's a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. Okay, this is... This, this language that he chooses is really just one slap in the face after another slap in the face. He's not a leader of the church. He's a ringleader. He's someone who's instigating kind of illegal activity. He's a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. See, he's trying to, to, to right out of the gate, disqualify Paul because he's connected to Nazareth. Now, the reason they're bringing up Nazareth here is because Jesus was from Nazareth. But Nazareth had a horrible reputation in the ancient world. If you remember in, in the Gospels, Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And so by tying Paul to Nazareth, what, what the, the lawyer is trying to do is say, uh, maybe in modern terms it's like this, and I hesitate to say this because it's actually a wonderful place. I lived there for a long time. But it's like saying, um, he, he's, he's a ringleader from a gang in Surrey, Okay. In local terms, it's like he's, they're trying to disqualify him because of where he comes from, because he's on that side of the bridge. And, and so this is, this is what he's doing as, as, as they're kind of saying that he's from Nazareth, disqualifying him. So, so from th that point, he's a plague. He's destroying, he's, he's doing riots. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And then third, and this is the only claim that I think brings any real charge against him. They say he's trying to profane the temple, but we seized him. Don't worry. Here's the thing. They brought no evidence for any of this stuff. I mean, there's no real crime in the first two. It's, it's really just name-calling and, and guilty by association. But then they make this claim that, that he was profaning the temple, and their proof is, is ask him. He'll tell you. If you ask him, by examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything in which we accused him. Essentially, they're hoping that Paul's going to say something in front of Felix that is going to be incriminating. Those are the charges. Verse 11, and the governor, when he nodded for him to speak, Paul replied. Okay, this is Paul's turn to bring a defense against what's been said. He says, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up crowds in the synagogue or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges that are now being made against me. However, I do admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. That's what Christians were called then, which they call a sect. In other words, he's saying, the stuff they're saying about me, the riots in Jerusalem, defying the temple, I, I didn't even have time to do those things. I've only been here for 12 days. And five of those days, I've actually been with this crew. They've kind of been detaining me because of these crimes they say I've committed. He says, you can verify it. 
Go to Jerusalem. Ask anyone who was there. I didn't, I didn't dispute anyone. I didn't stir up any crowds in the temple or the synagogues or in the city of all. I didn't even preach in the streets. I came to worship Yahweh in the temple, and then I got beat up and taken into custody. Verify it for yourself, Felix. But you can't prove any of this stuff because it didn't happen. Notice, Paul has nothing to hide. In regards to profaning the temple and stirring up riots and causing chaos in the streets, he says, do whatever digging you need to do, Felix. Investigate the claims. Go ask people in the streets. I know that if you look into it, you'll find them to be empty claims. He has nothing to hide because truth is on his side. And can I just say, that is such a good place to be, to know that truth is on your side. To not have to lie or or cover up or spin a story to try to protect yourself. To just live openly and transparently, having nothing to hide. You're not feeling this need to pretend that you're something that you're not. Not feeling like you need to kind of show yourself to be this way or that way. Just living a life of honesty, where your private life and your public life are so in sync. Not having to worry, like if someone found out about this, I've walked with several friends over the last number of years who were carrying something around with them, some secret that, that, that was consuming them, that was making, making their life so difficult. And when they finally brought it into the light, when they finally confessed their sin, exposed it, had nothing left to hide, I think they would all tell you that they felt so much lighter. As painful as it is to do, it sets you free. Exposing the truth makes you so much lighter. There's something so freeing about having nothing to hide, about living a life of truth and transparency, exposing who you really are, the good and the bad and the ugly. And so because Paul does not have anything that's incriminating, he doesn't have any skeletons in his closet that they can pull up, nothing to hide, his accusers have to make up a bunch of nonsense about him in order to accuse him. They lie about him in order to take him down. He's starting riots. He's defiling the temple. But if you look beneath the layers of those claims, I don't think it was really about any of that stuff, about the riots or disturbing peace. It all boils down to Paul's proximity to Jesus, that Paul followed Jesus, and it drove the religious leaders crazy. They hated him because of it, that he followed this Jesus. They hated him because of it. I I don't think that we should be surprised if the world hates us or cuts us out because of our faith in Jesus. According to John 15, it's actually something that we we can expect. Jesus says, when the world hates you, remember they hated me first. And especially as we live in this cultural moment that we find ourselves in, one that's becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith, I think we should expect that the gospel is actually going to offend some people. Jesus' call to confess sin and to turn to God, his, his claims to be the exclusive way to the Father, It doesn't go over super well in a a 21st century pluralistic Western world. And as time goes on, I think it's possible that our allegiance to Jesus could cost us relationships or jobs or promotions if we're unwilling to to compromise our values, unwilling to to turn on our convictions and our faith. But all that being said, can can I just say, if people are going to hate you, if they're gonna have something against you, make sure it actually is Jesus. Make sure it's actually Jesus that's causing the conflict, that that the world is hostile towards us because of our proximity to Jesus and not just because we're a bit of a jerk. (laughs) Here's what I mean. I think far too often I've heard Christians hold up Jesus' words from John 15 as a banner and as a license to say whatever they want, whenever they want, and they defend it by saying, well, Jesus said this would happen. 
Jesus said that the world was going to hate us. And sometimes I feel, I just want to say, I don't think it's Jesus in you that they're hating right now. It might be the absence of Jesus in you. I don't think they're hating you because you're a Christian. I think you're just being mean or rude or dismissive or unloving. Maybe you're sharing things. Maybe you're sharing truth. But you're doing it in a way that's harsh and condescending and making people close their ears. See, the call of the Christian is to live in such a way that people see Jesus when they look at us. To share the truth, absolutely, to share the truth, unashamedly, but to do it in love. Paul said it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. As the people of God, we should be the most loving and caring and compassionate and and hospitable and and, and the, the most of these things of any person on the planet. Just as we've experienced the extravagant generosity of God, the hope and the joy and the forgiveness that he has on offer, we should extend the same to others. Inviting in the the rich and the poor, the stranger and the outcast, pulling up a chair at the table. We should live in such a way that our proximity to Jesus is the only thing they could have against us. That the only valid claim they could make against us is that we're followers of this Jesus, that we actually live into his way of life. But they, like, they would say, like they said about Paul, he's, he's part of a sect of the Nazarenes. Paul goes on. None of that stuff's true, he says. However, I will admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that's in accordance of the law that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as, as the men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Here's what he's saying. We actually have more in common than than you guys are saying. I'm I'm also a worshiper of Yahweh. I abide by everything that was written in the law and the prophets. We worship the same God. The only difference between me and these Jewish leaders is, is that I actually believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole story. That Jesus is where this whole Jewish faith and story was going all the time. That that God the story of God climaxes in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Paul finishes his rebuttal and, and I imagine that maybe the room goes quiet. The silence, a hush falls over the place as they wait for a response from the governor. And how how does Felix respond to the claims of the religious leaders, to to the claims and the response from Paul? I want to spend the majority of our time, the rest of our time together today, I want to spend it looking at the the response from, from Felix because I think there's a lot that we can learn from it. He responds in three ways. He responds with curiosity, with anxiety, and with complacency. I was trying to find three C words, but I couldn't find them. At least not for the middle one. So I settled for words that ended with an E sound. Okay? So we got curiosity, anxiety, and complacency. Let's, let's read the last six verses of the chapter, and then we'll unpack those three responses. Verse 22. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. In other words, he called it to a close. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I'll decide your case. He ordered the centurions to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him, and he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You can leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. Let's look at those three E's together. First, curiosity. 
I find it interesting that after that day in court, Felix sends for Paul repeatedly. Did you catch that? Time after time. It actually goes on for, for two years. For two years, he regularly calls Paul and listens to him talk about Jesus. He even brought his wife to hear from Paul. He was curious. He was wondering. I think he was wondering, why would Paul, why would he sacrifice his whole life, even risk death out of allegiance to this Jesus? Like, like Paul was a prominent rabbi among the Pharisees, among the Jewish people. He was well-respected in the Jewish community. What made him change his tune? Why is, why is he preaching the same message that he was originally trying to stomp out? I think Felix was just filled with curiosity. Whether or not this Jesus was actually the Messiah, Paul certainly believed he was, enough to go to death for it. And there was a growing population of people who were believing it too, but why? Felix was curious and as I was studying this passage over this last week, it made me ask this question of myself. Does my life, does the way that I live make the people around me curious about why I'm the way that I am? Does the way that I love and serve and care for those around me, does, do the things that I say, does the way that I conduct my life make people curious about why I am the way that I am? Make them curious about Jesus, about the hope that I have? I hope so. I want that to be true of me. Ten, ten years ago, my friend Clint's wife passed away. Super young age. She passed away from cancer. She's about 30 years old. Two kids at home. Absolute tragedy. And, and I remember watching Clint navigate that situation. He grieved. Like, he really grieved. He was broken, but he also had this insane hope. He clung to Jesus. And, and it made me stand in awe. It made the world around him stand in awe, like, he really believes this stuff. That his wife is in the presence of Jesus, that God will take care of him and his kids in the absence of their mom. And as he navigated this season, really the darkest season of his life, he didn't turn on God, but he actually clung to him. And Clint made people curious. Like, why is he filled with such hope? Why is he so steady while the world around him just completely crashes in? Clint made people curious. And, uh, you know, maybe you're here today and you're curious. You're not really sure what you think about this Jesus just yet, but you're, you're considering. You're not religious. You're not really considering yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus, but you're curious. I think there's something in Felix that was seeking truth. He kept coming back time and time again. He would listen and ponder and wonder. He was curious. And that's why I love Alpha so much, this program that we run in our church, because it creates this space for curious people to come and to learn and to explore in a non-judgmental environment. You know, we had 92 curious people this last week come to Alpha across our church. Isn't that so exciting? Can we celebrate that? The, these are people who, who many of them have indicated to us that they are not yet followers of Jesus. They're exploring. They're curious. They're looking into faith. And I'm so encouraged that God is drawing people towards himself. So we see, we see the curiosity of Felix. But then we also see the anxiety of Felix, the, the fear in Felix. Verse 25 says, Felix was afraid. As Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. I think this is an interesting one. It kind of feels to me like role reversal happening here because who's in charge? Felix. Who's the prisoner? Paul. And I, I mean, logistically thinking, I think the prisoner who's in chains should be the one who's trembling. The governor should be the one who's laughing and calm and collected. He's the one in power. 
Why is he fearful? But no, the guy in charge, Felix, is shaking. He's trembling because Paul has reasoned with him about faith in Jesus. What it means to be right with God and, and about heaven and hell. I think that word reasoned, Paul reasoned, is such an important one to note. Because I think a lot of people assume that the Christian faith is one that requires that you just blindly follow along. A lot of people assume that the biblical story of Jesus is, is, is one that can be so easily dismissed, like an easily dismissed fairy tale. Like a conspiracy theory that can just be easily debunked if you just look a little closer at the facts. But that's not actually true. That's not the case. The closer you look at the facts, the more you'll realize that the Christian faith is a very reasonable thing to believe. A very reasonable thing. There's this brilliant intellectual named Albert Henry Ross who wrote a book in the 1930s. It was called Who Moved the Stone? Where he who was this outspoken atheist, he set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus and the Christian movement altogether. He said, someone's got to put this hoax to bed. And so he studied. And as he was studying and preparing to write this book, he found the, the, the evidence of the resurrection so compelling that he ended up becoming a Christian through the process. And he ended up writing a book that was very different than he originally set out to write. Paul reasoned with Felix. And it made him anxious. It made him scared because the gospel butted up against the, it confronted the lifestyle that he'd been living. Paul told him about Jesus and how to be made right with God. He talked about self-control, which I think was a really important one to talk to Felix about when he'd been abusing his power and taking from the weak and, and praying on the vulnerable. Paul called him out on it. The way you're leading is not okay. He told him about the judgment that's to come, about heaven and hell. And as Paul shared about Jesus and the gospel and grace that Jesus has on offer, it made Felix fearful. It made him tremble because he knew that it demanded a response. You know, in a lot of ways, the story of, of Felix, it reminds me of the rich young ruler who, who approached Jesus. Do you remember that story? Where he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come follow me. And Mark 10.22 says, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The rich young ruler was, the rich young ruler was sad because Jesus was going to cost him everything. To follow Jesus was going to require that he lay his life down. If he was going to embrace Jesus as Lord, he was going to have to give up his comfortable life. He'd have to surrender control would require this radical change. And so, so with this emotional response from Felix, we see him trembling, this conviction that's starting to happen in his life. Something is grabbing at his heart. But rather than acting on it, rather than doing the right thing, this is what we see from Felix. He delays. Look what Felix says in verse 25. That's enough for now. You can leave. When I have a convenient time, I will send for you. I think this is the saddest verse in our whole text. Maybe one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. Because here's the tragedy. If you look at history, that convenient time for Felix never came. Two years later, Felix, he, he was removed from his post. The Romans officially saw this guy was a complete nut job. They moved him from his post. And, and, and he, he was kicked out of office. He left Caesarea where he was deployed. And shortly after, he passed away. Felix was given opportunity after opportunity to do the right thing. For two years, he heard from Paul. For two years, he was like personally mentored by Paul the Apostle, by this guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Can you imagine that, being mentored by Paul? Like you and Paul and a coffee at Cafe Espresso Bar, okay? 
This is what was going on here. He, he, and, and, and as it was happening, his heart was stirred. He was trembling because of what Paul was saying. But Felix kept saying, no, no. When it's convenient, I'll, I'll consider it. Tomorrow, I'll consider it. But he missed it because he was procrastinating. He was complacent. One theologian said that tomorrow is the most dangerous word in the Christian life. Tomorrow, I'll confess my sin. Tomorrow, I'll find accountability. Tomorrow, I'll, I'll get right with God. Tomorrow, I'll, I'll break, break up that healthy, unhealthy relationship, that dating relationship, or I'll stop that habit. Tomorrow, you know, I'll, I'll give my life to Jesus. Tomorrow, I'll start living out the call of God on my life. Tomorrow, I'll get baptized. Tomorrow may never come. The time is now. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Paul writes, Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not later, not tomorrow, now. Jesus is standing at the door and knocking now. And I wonder if there's some Felixes here this morning. Maybe you've been complacent. Maybe you've been procrastinating, but it's time to go all in with Jesus, and you know it. There's, there's this sense of, of angst, maybe even, even trembling. Even now, maybe you're wondering if God is speaking to you, that it's time to come to him. Maybe you've been sitting on the fence. Maybe you've even been like 60% of the way in, 60% committed. I mean, you're here in church. You're, you're obviously at least curious. You're listening, but God is inviting you to go all in, to turn to Jesus, to return to Jesus to surrender your life to God, to a God who loves you and died for you. I wonder who today Jesus might want to get a hold of, who he might be drawing to himself. There's so much that God wants to do in your life and through your life, but he needs your yes. Yes to Jesus. Yes, I'll surrender my life to him. You know, Scripture tells us that, that coming to Jesus is as simple as believing in your heart that, God, that Jesus is Lord and confessing with your mouth that God raised him from the dead and you're saved. So if you do want in today, if you feel like, you know what, I've, I'm, I'm done procrastinating. I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to him. I would love to pray for you. To pray for those who want to come to Jesus. But I'd also love to pray for some who might be here today and maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but there's something in your life that you've been needing to deal with, that you've been convicted about, that, that's been wreaking havoc in your world. Like you know that there's stuff in your life that needs to change, that's separating you from God, that's messing with your relationships, but you've been procrastinating, sitting in, in complacency, lukewarm. One, theolo one theologian called procrastination Felix syndrome. Maybe you have Felix syndrome. And you've been sensing God leading you, drawing you in, but you've been ignoring it. Can I just say, the time is now. Don't delay. The longer you wait, actually the harder that it's going to be. We get this imagery in scripture of, of a father, of a God with arms stretched wide open. A father who loves you and is ready to receive you just as you are and welcome you in with a warm embrace. You know, I don't know what's, what's going on in your life. I don't know what the Spirit of God might even be saying to you in this moment. Maybe there's something that you've done that you need to confess, that you need to bring before him, that you need to share. With some. Maybe there's something you haven't done that you need to do. Maybe there's been a calling on your life that you've been putting off and putting off. You know that God has called you to do something, to, to go down a certain path, and you haven't been going down that path. 
today is the day. If you have Felix syndrome, there's hope. Come to Jesus. The time is now. Tomorrow may never come. Take a step. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, I, I pray for those who are in this room today that you are drawing towards yourself. Those who've been curious, been seeking, but haven't yet made a commitment to follow you. In this moment, Jesus, I pray you would give great courage to turn to you, to come to you, to take that first step towards the warm embrace of the Father. If that's you today and you want to come to Jesus, if you want to follow him, if you want to give him your yes, you can just, in your heart, you can just pray these words along with me. Jesus, I give my life to you. This is my yes today. I want to follow you. I want to surrender my life to you. Take me as I am. Take my sin and make me new. I also want to pray right now for people who might be here, as I said, who might be struggling with some really difficult stuff and you've been procrastinating in dealing with it. God, I just pray for those friends who are here today that you would give them the great courage it takes to bring what's in the dark into the light, that you would bring great freedom across our church, that we would become the kind of people who are, have nothing to hide, who are fully surrendered to you, King Jesus, and receive the freedom that you have on offer. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to move into a time of, of communion. And we have some of the best communion servers up here. Um, and so uh, here's, here's how we're going to do it. Um, I, I haven't been here the last few weeks, but I've heard there's been some crazy traffic jams. Is that right? So Nathan has a new brainchild of how we're going to do this. We're going to try it out this week, okay? As you see, there's communion servers on both sides. And uh, what we're going to ask that you do is that you come up to the one that's closest to you. So if you're on this side, come up to these servers. If you're on this side, come up to these servers. And, uh, and so you can come and grab it and then return, kind of, kind of like how you drive, right? Come up on one side, go back the other way, return to your seat um, that way. And uh, what else was I gonna say? Oh yeah, front to back. So we're gonna start with the people in the front, front, front few rows. There's not gonna be someone officially dismissing you, but we can do this, right? As you see the people in front of you leaving and lining up, that's your cue to kind of start getting ready and to line up as well. Here's what communion is all about. Communion is a sacrament that the church has been practicing since Jesus' very death and resurrection. It's something Jesus commanded us to do, to take the bread, which represents his body that was broken for us, and then to take the juice, which represents his blood that was poured out for us. And as we take the bread, as we eat it, as we take the juice, we remember the great sacrifice that Jesus made so that we could live, so that we could be made right with God, the great substitution that happened on the cross. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca slash railcity to find out more information about getting involved in the life and mission of the Rail City campus of CA Church.